All right, welcome back to episode 14 of the Bible Connection podcast. Guys, this is a weekly podcast that follows our church's Bible reading plan that we might encourage you to just keep on keeping on when reading your Bibles. So I'm your host, Josh Williams, and with me are my good friends, Brandon, hey. John, keeping on, and Taylor. Hello. <laughs> okay, this, uh, this week we are discussing all of 1 Samuel, so let's hop right into it. So the book of Samuel, it's divided into two parts for the reader, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So as we look at the first part this week, we see the stories of three different men. Okay, We have Samuel, we have Saul, and we have David. So what is, what is the condition of Israel as a whole uh, during the life of Samuel, and how does God use him in his divine plan? Well, there's a lot to say about the condition of Israel, and if you remember where we left off in the book of Judges, it isn't good. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so it gets from bad to even worse in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. But hope is coming, because if you remember the book of Ruth, the Lord has been using um, people to bring about his divine purposes. And just like um, we have this mother, Ruth, and another mother, Rahab, that had huge impacts on their children, um, we now have this mother named Hannah, who cannot have children um, so she begs and pleads before the Lord for a child, and she's given the birth of this son named Samuel. And we can tell that this woman is not simply just really, really badly wanting something and wishing as hard as she can that God will give her something, but she's been devoting herself to the Lord and fervently praying and reading the Torah in order to um, search out what God might do for her. Because she, when she prays her prayer in chapter 2, um, you just see it saturated with some of the most beautiful language and reverence for God. There is none holy like the Lord, verse 2, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God, which will be picked up again by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44. And you know she's been reading Deuteronomy because she's quoting Deuteronomy 32 when she says in verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And she continues with these merisms, showing that she trusts God's sovereignty in between all things. He makes the poor and he makes the rich. He brings the low and he exalts. And so Samuel is the, is the offspring that is bringing about all this rejoicing, and the Lord is going to use him in some pretty magnificent ways in this text. Yeah, and there's one thing I'd like to pick up on, and, and it speaks to the, the, whole, the whole of Samuel as a whole, right? Because we, we have in our, in our English Bibles, we have a 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We're only we're dealing with 1 Samuel today mm-hmm. in, in this podcast. But <clears throat> Samuel is meant to be read as a whole. Samuel begins with this with this prayer with this song um, that, that Hannah prays, and what we should see is the connection, the bookend, the the bookend that begins Samuel with this that <clears throat> Hannah begins, uh, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn, underline horn. I don't care if you don't write in your Bibles an underline horn; it's very important. Yes, sir. Because. Let me find a pen. <laughs> we are never over, over and over in Scripture. We are those who who exalt their own horn are condemned, mm. right? They're they're brought low, right? So what 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 uh, Hannah is saying is she's looking to the Lord to exalt her horn. My horn is exalted in the Lord, right? My 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 mouth derides my injuries because I rejoice in your salvation. Right, and what does this salvation looks like? This this salvation um, that there's none holy like the Lord, and, and like John said, um, there's no rock like our God. But this this you know she's 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 exulting in the Lord for giving her this 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 child. But it seems strange that she, she's speaking of the redemption of Israel, 
right? And how is how is how is the Lord going to redeem Israel, right? Um, and 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 we we talked a little bit about this in in Ruth, <clears throat> but she's but the Lord is going to do this, you know, immediately through a king, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be one king. He's good, not he's not so good, but we know that David is the man after God's own heart, and he's going to deliver. He's going to deliver. Israel, and we see that at the end of this psalm, um, in, in in verse ten of chapter two, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven, and I would under I, I would remember this 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 speech of thunder because the, over and over in in this narrative it says that the Lord thunders from heaven. It, it's picked up over and over and over again. But how is he going to do this? How is the Lord thundering from? Um, from heaven, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Mashiach, his, his, his Messiah, is, is what's said here. This is a strange thing that's said here because, one, there's not a king. Two, the Israel's king is to be for Israel or the world, because it says here that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth through this king, right? Mm-hmm. And that that so so we see how, you know ultimately Samuel ends. It's not the last chapter, but it's the last words of David in Second Samuel chapter twenty three. This is the bookend of 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 the Samuel. David picks up on this same language, right? And he he basically is mirroring what Hannah has prayed, and he's 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 showing how how um, God is doing this. Um, he's speaking of the rock of Israel. Um, 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 but but anyway, um, um, but he's he's showing he's showing this. This is the book in this this same language David is using. Um, to close out, to close out the the book of Samuel. But what's interesting is we see at the beginning that this Messiah is going to judge the ends of the earth. David doesn't judge the ends of the earth. David judges Israel. I mean, J- David rules Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. So we see that there's this there's this tension that this Messiah, literally this Mashiach, this Messiah, this anointed one that's that is to be given. There's something more. And that's what you see over and over in the scriptures, especially with da- with the story of David. There's so much promised in David, especially when you get into Second Samuel. But David just doesn't hit the mark, and it leaves you even with how amazing David is. There's something more, something more in God's promises, and we're going to see ultimately that points to Jesus. And so Samuel kind of operates as the person that's going to anoint this anointed one, at least in the person of David. And so asking about the condition of Israel, um, I think that Taylor wanted to talk a little bit about um, you know, their, their flippancy towards the, the actual dwelling place of God in the ark. But it's gotten so bad in Israel that now even the high priest's sons are making it impossible to honor God. It, it wasn't in the book of Judges, people didn't desire it, but now it's not even possible. People would come and bring sacrifices, and Hophni and Phinehas would be taking the fat of the offering and eating it in front of them and bullying them by force if they if they refused. And so the Lord brings judgment on uh, Eli for not disciplining his sons and Hophni and Phinehas for their rebellion, and they just completely disregard 
this uh, warning from the Lord and treat the Ark of God like it's a trophy, like it's a, a battle standard. Uh, so you'll notice that uh, Samuel is both a prophet and a judge, uh, and there are only three people in in the entirety of Scripture um, that you read that hold both of these titles, and that's Moses, Deborah, and Samuel. So you see that Samuel is dealing with the Philistine people, and as we read through Judges, uh, the Israelites were struggling with the Philistine gods and the Philistines' way of life, and we see that continuation uh, on through Samuel as we read. So in, interestingly, in chapter 4, we see that the Israelites, they're going uh, to um, go into battle against the Philistines, and they take the Ark of the Covenant with them, and something different happens. The Philistines capture the Ark, um, and like, what in the world happened? If you read back in chapter 2, you see that Eli had two worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, and those two sons— um, it actually says uh, that they were worthless men, and it concludes that in the, I think in that same paragraph that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They had no regard for Yahweh, and that's them. And they took the Ark of the Covenant with them in that way. And we can see that all of Israel's heart is not with the Lord, but rather like using the Ark as kind of like this this magical symbol or something to go in and win the battle rather than God himself is the one that is giving them the battle and the victory. So in chapter 4, early on, we see that they they lose the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines capture it. Uh, and it goes um, and, and it goes on that uh, they're, they're celebrating and they have, um, the, the Philistines have it, and they, they put it up, I think it's in a temple uh, of like where Dagon, oh, their God is. Uh, and overnight, uh, Dagon had fallen down face forward, uh, and they come in and they notice it. Like, what in the world? The Ark of the Covenant. Like, well, okay, we're going to put him back up. And maybe the ground wasn't stable. Yeah, it, I mean, fluke. something. I mean, yeah, something could have happened. Um, and then the very next night, the same thing happens. But then his hands are cut off, um, and it spooks them out. And they're like, "Oh, there's there's actual power in the God of Israel with, with the Ark of the Covenant." So th- they don't want anything to do with it. Um, and we and, and like pulling from that. Um, it it kind of had uh, this thought to me. So Dagon, this pagan god the Philistines worshipped that had absolute nothing for it, there was no uh, toleration of this god, and it was put face down. Um, just like the gods of Egypt or the many of the other gods that the, uh, the people of Israel face, um, they're all put in their place as non-gods, as uh, non-powerful, and we see that um, this Philistine god Dagon is, is no different. So the question we can ask ourselves today is: Should we tolerate the gods of our culture? Mm-hmm. And there's this uh, thing: oh, How would how do we be respectful to people, and how do we and do we handle that? And like, if you look on the back of bumper stickers, there's this coexisting that has been around for a while, and there's all these other thoughts, and we need to get along and be politically correct, and all of that. We respect the people, but we in no sense ever tolerate the gods of the enemy. Um, and I think that's what we see here. Um, and there's no toleration for Dagon, um, and there should be no toleration of anything that we see today. We can love the people uh, and not have any toleration of false gods. Yeah, and, and I would I would uh, remind us again that this Exodus motif that we mentioned um, in Exodus and also in Ruth, that the Ark of the Covenant— 
leaves, is, is captured, goes away from the people and the land and the promises and into exile, right? But is, is, is the, the Lord, right? He's showing that he's the one that's powerful because there's no Israel out there to deliver the Lord from, from the Philistines' hands. It's the Lord himself, mm-hmm. right? He is plundering. He himself is plundering the, uh, uh, the Philistines, the Philistines, right? And he, he, he is he, symbolically through, through the ark, he is plundering the Philistines and he's, he's coming out of exile with plunder. He's he's as he's he's going away in a sense empty and leaving full, right? Um, and and we're going to see that same thing in David as well. So. And so, looking at the way Samuel judges over Israel, you're going to see that at the end of his time judging, he tells the people, "Have I ever cheated you? Have I ever demanded anything from you?" And they all say in a, in a loud voice, "No, you haven't." And we can even see what his judgeship looked like if you look at chapter seven. Um, there's this amazing pattern of Samuel's service as a judge. In the scriptures, um, the people come to him, and he demands repentance of them. Verse 3, and they actually turn away from these Baals and these Ashtaroths in the land. And then the Philistines come upon them, and unlike in the past when they terror and fear, they actually came to Samuel and said, pray the Lord that he may save us. They relied on God, something we've not seen for generations in Israel. And when they do, the Lord actually delivers. He brings confusion among the Philistines and defends them. And they have reverence for God. And he does this thing where he takes a nursing lamb and he sacrifices it to the Lord. And what I want to point out is not only did it bring restoration and rest in the land, but he he does this thing that's really strange in verse 12 where he takes a stone and he sets it up between Mizpah and Shin. And he, he builds this thing called an Ebenezer. And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. And we sing this song all the time in our churches, Right. In, in our churches, we sing the lyrics, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, only by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Hmm. And what we can see from this text is that here, Samuel relies on God in his time of trouble. He, he offers the blameless young lamb as a sacrifice, and, and the Lord provided help in his affliction. And we can trust the same thing, and we do claim that. Um, whether we know it or not, from the context of that song, we claim that in the Lord Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. that when we trust in his, re- in his defense and in his blood and, and in the sacrifice that he made for us, the Lord will be our help. He will be our Ebenezer. Mm. All right, now let's talk about his, how Israel doesn't do that. <laughs> so chapter 8, we see that Israel demands a king, right? And then looking at chapter 9, uh, once the people have rejected the Lord and desired a king to be set over them, God sends Samuel to anoint Saul as their king. So my question is, why why did God go on to reject Saul as king after choosing him for Samuel to anoint? And did did, did God change his mind here? Yeah, so we see, um, I, I, would, I would highlight where Saul came from. Saul came from a place called Gilboa. Right? And literally, what that means in Hebrew is is tall. It's 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 a it's a derivative of, of to be tall, right? And and Saul is is described as a tall man, like he's a head taller than than all in Israel, right? And we see here that there's there if if you look, I would I would, I would we don't have the time here, but 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 trace out uh, 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 Gilboa, um, 
um, and and see that there's some interesting what what's happening with cities. Cities are very mitzvah uh, judgment um, uh, where you know they're coming to mitzvah um, um, uh, where where uh, Saul comes from. Um, so the what what what's happening with Saul? Saul is a king like the other nations, mm-hmm. right? Um, he the 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 people of Israel are are seeking this king like the other nations. They don't want they don't want Yahweh to be their king, right? Um, they want they want a king um, that is 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 going to give them stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, they want a a, a a king that's going to um, that's 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 going to do all the earthly things that a that a that a, a successful earthly king can give them, right? But without the strings attached, yeah, right. Um, uh, but what they don't realize is all the all the the baggage that comes from an unjust king, mm. right? So we see that 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 Saul is this king like the nations, right? And he's a Benjamite. What's interesting about Benj- um, Benjamin means son of my sorrow. Right, and you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's an irony, right? That he's, I mean, one, we know that the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. Um, we see that in 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 Genesis, right? But but Saul's not from there, so. Well, Saul's one of my favorite characters in in the entire Bible, and when we look at him at first, he actually isn't doing that bad of a job as king. We see him in chapter eleven. The spirit of God rushed upon him. And he basically got the men of Israel to step it up and do what they needed to do. He carved this ox in half and said, this is what is going to be done to you men if you don't report for battle. And they show up and they have this great victory. But then Samuel, he, he tells the people, right, um, you, know, uh, you shall know and see in chapter 12, verse, uh, I guess that's 17, that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking yourselves for a king. So he called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and the people greatly feared um, the Lord and Samuel. And Samuel says one of the most captivating verses in, in the entire Old Testament for me. He said to the people, verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. <laughs> There's this place in the scriptures um, that all the time, like it's a few places, the Lord, the Lord abounding in steadfast mercy, um, but who will by no, mere, by no means clear, uh, clear the guilty. And then Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter two, which we talked about in Sunday school recently, you know, you, you know, you you are by nature children of wrath, objects of destruction, but God being great in mercy. And one of the things that I've been taught to do when I was younger is put a little cross right between it, because these passages don't make any sense without without the work of Christ. And right here in my Bible, I've got a little red cross between "Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil," because even though their desire was evil, the Lord is not is not trying to tear down Israel. He's for them and not against them. Mm-hmm. And Saul is is given the opportunity, verse 14 of chapter 12, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And what do we see Saul do? Well, first we see him not respecting the, the sacrifices the way that God's prophet told him to do so. That's enough to get Moses disqualified from the promised land for not doing it the way God told him to. And so God rejects him as king. And he doesn't repent of that and turn around. We see that after years of serving, he in chapter 14, verse 35, he says it was the first altar he ever built to the Lord in this battle. The Lord does not desire a half-hearted king. He desires a king 
that is after the heart of God. Um, and so when we get to chapter 15 and the Lord finally does uh, reject Saul, we get some strange scripture that's a little difficult for us to, to categorize in our theology. He says in verse 11 of 15, I regret that I made Saul king. And again in chapter 15, verse 35, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So you ask the question, does God change his mind? And so you might be inclined to say, yes. But then you also get Samuel testifying in verse 29, God is not a man that he should regret. Calling back to Numbers 23, 19, when Balak was prophesying and said, God is not a man that he should repent. And so what we need to understand about God is his ways are higher than our ways. And that there is a way of viewing God and the way he ordains the, the, the actions of men in which, yes, at the same time, when he looks upon men in their sin, he is uncomfortable and, and deeply regrets what's going on. However, he's not taken by surprise and not taken aback because he's not a man that he should regret. Um, and so uh, the question, did God you know, change his mind? Why does he go on to reject Saul? This rejection of Saul is going to serve to raise up the true king of Israel to teach him reliance on God. It's a, it's a God-ordained, sovereign working of mercy in, in the lives of, of countless generations. How many people have been encouraged for the last 3,000 years by looking at the life of David and his submission and servitude and patience when he's overlooked, when he should be, by all rights, given the position that he's been anointed for? So, um there's just so much sovereignty and love and foresight and wisdom in God's ways here. And we need to recognize that he is not a man. He is above us. Absolutely. And that, that was beautifully said. Immediately when you said regret, that, that made me think all the way back to Genesis yeah. uh, chapter 6 when um, it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to us. That just, you just explained that out so well. And then um, one, one thing that I really like that Samuel says in a, uh, chapter 15, to, to kind of tag on what you've been saying, uh, verse 22, and Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And that just, uh, once again, further institutes the, the, the importance of relationship and um, obedience for the purpose of relationship and and. and and it's not about this sacrificial system, but rather the sacrificial system points toward uh, that relationship that Saul clearly missed. Hmm. All right, rolling into the next question. So in chapter 16, as a result of Saul's disobedience, right, God chooses David to be the king over Israel. However, the chapter ends with David in Saul's service playing music for him. So, so why, why is David not immediately made king right here? I see at least three reasons why David's not immediately made king. Um, you know, the Lord could have overcome any of them. We've seen Josiah, you know, eight years old, becoming king. Um, but number one, David's really young. When he steps forward to fight Goliath, which I know we're going to come back to and talk, um, you know, Saul says to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine. You're just a youth. David is really young when he's been anointed as king. Secondly, um, he's yet to prove himself. I mean, the, you know, the, the people of Israel first grumbled against Saul and didn't treat him as king until his first victory in battle. And then some people were like, let's kill those guys who didn't believe him. He's like, no, we shouldn't kill them. You know, now they know. Now I'm king. David is going to be blessed by God by giving the opportunity to have his name renowned in Israel before he takes the kingship. Mm -hmm. And there's not going to be that doubt in his authority. And then thirdly, um, he had no potential claim to the throne. It's really weird once you establish a king 
in Israel, like really established. He's been anointed by the Lord, by Samuel. He is made king. What's his claim to the throne? Is this just going to be a violent, you know, takeover? You know, how are people going to accuse David? But he's given the opportunity to marry into the royal family by marrying Saul's daughter. And then the Lord brings it about that all of Saul's children die out so that David is in no way accused of stealing the throne, but has legal claim to it over the, the eyes of the people. So there's a lot of things the Lord is working out in the life of David that make it to where him immediately taking the throne wouldn't be a, um, a good picture for the people around him. Can I get allegorical for a second? Yeah. <clears throat> so David is anointed king, right? But he, he's not exalted as king yet. So we can see this <clears throat> systematic theologians have, have often spoken of the already but not yet tension in the scriptures, right? And we see this, we see this personally in our own redemption, in our own salvation, in our own, um, so, right? We are, we are, we are justified, right? We are, we are, we are, we are justified. We're in Christ, um, but yet we're not fully, fully glorified, right? We're, you know, there's, there's a tension in which you see in the book of, in the book of Romans, in which in Romans eight, Paul says, we are, we are adopted. We're adopted sons and daughters of God, but yet in basically in the same breath, David said, or I mean, not David, uh, Paul says, we are anticipating our full adoption as the sons, the sons of God. Right, so there's there's this tension that yes we that 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 we have been given this gift of eternal life, but the fullness of eternal life ultimately happens when we're face to face with God. Right, so we see we see this kind of already but not yet tension, even allegorically in David. Anything else on David? Yeah, so uh, John mentioned that that he was a youth and he, he was out separating with the flocks and out. Traditionally, it's understood that uh, young boys, like 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, would have been with the flock. So how old was David? I don't know, but he was young. He was a youth, um, and he was the one that stood up to Goliath. So um, in looking in the story of David and Goliath, you can see David's heart um, and where he is and what he believes about Yahweh. So if you look uh, in the text, it says that there was a champion named Goliath. Um, and that champion is because this is champion warfare. And if you're familiar with champion warfare, it's where one representative from an army would battle a representative from another army. And the victor over those two that fought would, uh, in essence, be representative of the entire battle, and one whole army would capture the other. If you ever seen the movie Troy, it's, it's depicted through Achilles and like some guy named like Bogrius or something, um, in which... Um, he jumps up and stabs right through the major centurious artery and just dies immediately. A really cool battle scene. <laughs> so you know the artery in which he said, yeah. So that um, the only good scene in that movie. <laughs> so th- that is a portrayal. If you want to know champion warfare, that is a portrayal of what champion warfare is. So think of that, except not him jumping up and stabbing the artery, but he has a sling and some stones. And um, so looking at how old David is, he's young. Um, and Goliath is said to have been uh, six cubits and a half tall. Is it six cubits tall? And, and a span. Has, six and cubits in a span. Six cubits in a span. Um, six cubits in a span. And it, he has uh, all this armor and he has all this stuff that is just this, like, amazing champion warfare fighter. And David goes up and fights him. So in Hebrew, 
or if you were an Israelite, if you were to look at numbers and you're talking about uh, a way to communicate what numbers mean, to to someone in an Israelite shoe um, or an Easterner, numbers often have symbolic meaning that have greater importance than the actual numerical value. That sounds crazy to a Westerner like us, but often numbers represent things that have greater context than the immediate numerical value. And right here, it says that Goliath had six pieces of armor. He was six cubits and a span tall, and there was 600 shekels of alls. There's a 666 that is repeated within the text, and immediately he is a representative of Satan. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, um, there is a promise um, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what happens right here in mm. chapter 17 with David and Goliath. The seed of the woman, David, crushes the head of the serpent, Goliath. And it's amazing to see that here in Goliath. In <clears throat> uh, Goliath is um, Taylor, shouting Taylor, out. Taylor has chill bumps right now. He's on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually see them. It's from the weird. <laughs> so. Let me back Sorry. up a little bit. I am actually cold. I've been, I really wish I would have brought a sweatshirt. And really <laughs> pumped. <laughs> that's, that's not a lie. But uh, Goliath, what was I saying? Uh, Goliath is uh, mocking God. He's, he's saying all these curses toward him. And what does David say? Um, I want to pull, pull out the text. Where's it at? I'm scattered. Uh, but David wants to have champion over Goliath that the whole world may know who his God is. Um, that the whole world, let's see, that the whole world may know who his God is, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David knows the commission. What is the commission? That they are to live as a kingdom of priests, that the whole world may look to them and know who their God is. And David's um, boast and commission is to have victory over this blaspheming Goliath champion warfare a warrior who wants to have victory over his God, Yahweh, and he won't let it happen. He wants to have victory over him so that the whole world may know who Yahweh is. Yeah. Um, oh, um, but there, there's something, there's something else I want to add to that because uh, Saul is called, uh, he's, he's a head taller than everyone. The city he's from is a derivative. Like we said is to be tall. Um, but, but, what do we see about the appearance of David? And you mentioned this a little bit, and, and, and you were alluding to First uh, Samuel 16. Um, but in First Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. That's, that's literally the word, um, the, the, the tall word, um, on his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, um, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so we see that this short, right, humble king, God's king, comes and um, and and fights this this the, the true seed of the woman, like what you were saying, comes and crushes the head of this giant serpent, right? And like you were mentioning, he's he's his 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 armor is is depicted even as scales. Right, as, as he, he looks like a snake, he's what he's saying. He's defiling uh, the, the 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 army of the Lord and the Lord Himself, just like Satan was doing in the in the in the garden. Right. So David comes and 
does not put on Saul's armor, right? But goes goes to the to this giant serpent with what? Stones. Right? At the beginning, Hannah said that the Lord is like a rock. And the irony is, is this giant is slain by a small stone, right? Um, and just this this imagery is throughout Samuel, right? But but what's even greater? What's 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 so amazing about this story is, and we and I mentioned it early early on, um, this this biblical theological thread that, that weaves its way throughout the scriptures, right? The, of of the the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. How what what is David defeats him by killing him with a stone. But it doesn't end there. He takes and cuts off his head. He puts his he puts his foot on the neck of his enemies, just like they did in Joshua. Right? He cuts off his head. Where does he take his head? Jerusalem. He takes his head to Jerusalem, displays it. Where is Jesus crucified? The place of the skull. The place of the skull. He gets its name from from Goliath's skull. So Goliath's we see. Death. Yeah, and Gath, and, and and trace out Gath too, and and, and where you know, what's what all happens in Gath? I think Go, David Gogatha means place of the skull. Yeah, Goliath of Gath. Yeah, right? I think so. Um, but but what I, but what I was saying was, but tracing um, tracing this out, that David is delivering Israel through killing the serpent. Jesus delivers the world right through killing of the ultimate. Serpent, right? Mm-hmm. He crushes. He crushes. Ultimately, all all of this imagery points to Jesus, right? And and at Golgotha. So, but yeah, great, mm-hmm. excellent. I, I wanted to add on to. So, David doesn't take the armor that he he's not used to to fighting with. He doesn't uh, have the iron weaponry. He doesn't use any of that. He uses what he's familiar with: a sling and stones. Uh, he, he was a shepherd. He, he would fight off animals from the sheep. He was familiar with those certain weapons, and he used them in battle. So I think th- there's, there's, a, there's a picture there. Um, David wanted the world to know that there's a God in Israel and to accomplish that. And to accomplish that, he used whatever resources that he had and what he was good with. Um, he used a sling, so therefore he fought with a sling. He didn't use something else. And I think to us— Whatever resources that we have that we're that we're used to or have means to get, we use that. We use that to accomplish uh, God's commission, and we can do that with whatever we have because God can use anything. If you notice later on, as we read through First um, and Second Samuel, when uh, David is fleeing, and then he, he's actually in some of these Philistine lands, and he comes back, and then he makes. Rounds the Israelites before this period don't have access to iron. Um, they 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 actually have to charge to get their their things sharpened. They don't have that access, but David gets access to that. And later on, when he's fighting battles, they're using iron. Iron is the you could say the culture of the day, the leading technology. It's so beginning of the Iron Age in yeah, Israel. Exactly. So um, literally, iron is what. Um, like shapes culture in, in, in some facet, and they didn't have access to it. But then once they got access to it, they used it in a way that was for God's kingdom. So there are irons of our day that we can use to shape culture. But if you don't have, let's say, the iron of our day, like the 
like what David had, you can use whatever tool it is to accomplish God's uh, mission. But when you have means to get to that, then you can go ahead and use it. All right, rolling on into the final question. So throughout the book of Psalms, there are many songs that are attributed to David during his affliction in times of trouble. Some like 59, 56, 52, 54, all those chapters. So what what light do these songs and poems shed on the story of 1 Samuel as we read? When you look through the story of 1 Samuel, you know, we see the, the metaphorical picture of Satan's head being chopped off by the seed of the serpent when Goliath is killed by David. But we also see a very literal, personal, emotional, um, and, and just raw and honest exposure of what David was going through when his accusers were attacking him throughout his life. Um, in chapter 21, verses 10 and following, David arose um, from Saul, and, and he's being accused um, around the Akish, the king of Gath. And it says in Psalm 56 that this is around the time that David wrote Psalm 56. And what is he praying? He's praying to God, deliver me, protect me, save me. And he concludes by saying, I will sing aloud of your love in the morning. David is trusting the Lord, offering up praise, but, uh, but he's demonstrating for us, teaching us how to pray in times of trouble. And this continues. First um, Samuel uh, chapter 22, when he's hiding in the cave, right? He's got some people basically tattling on him, like telling Saul where he's hiding, what, you know, just so that Saul can come and kill him. And we see that that's when Psalm 57 was written. Um, and he says in verse 6, They set a net for my steps, and my soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. We see um, a great encouragement from the example of David as we read these psalms of a man who's not afraid to, to be honest with God, to cry out to him and say things that might make us a little embarrassed, but also to praise God and to demonstrate his trust for them. Trust for him. I mean, we could see um, Psalm 56 once again. He says, be gracious to me. My enemies are trampling me. I'm afraid, so I put my trust in you. You've kept count of all my tossings. You put my tears in a bottle. They are in your book. So in God, I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You've delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. And when we talked about in Deuteronomy, it was the king was supposed to have a copy of the law of the Lord. He was supposed to be reading it. And the Psalter begins with the same charge given to Joshua, another king-like figure in Israel, to delight in the law of the Lord, mm. to meditate on it day and night. And David is becoming a man, becoming a king that will embody this, is going to write these songs for the people of Israel. And remember the promise God gave Saul, if you people and if the king obey my voice, then it will be well with you. And David is going to be a king that brings that, that blessing to the people in the land. And there, and I would I would point to to one other thing, and, and I'm I'm picking back up on something that I'd said earlier, and, but but David David is doing that as as a king, right? He is he is he is the rightful king, and and we see so many we've said so many times that David 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 David, and he's pointing to Jesus, right? You know the the after after this everything is about David, even after David's gone, he, the, the the prophets are still alluding back to David, right? But what's interesting in Psalm, in, uh, not Psalm, 1 Samuel 21, there's this strange interaction with David and the Holy Bread. David is exiled, right, to, to, the, to the land of the Philistines, just like the ark, right? So in a sense, we can, we can see David as like he is, he has become like the ark. He, you know, he's embodying 
Torah, right? He's 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 going out from from the land, you know, and we and he's 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 in exile, right? And 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 as he's in exile, um, there's this strange passage where David David and his mighty men are eating the holy bread, the the bread of the presence, right? And Jesus allude this 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 Jesus alludes to this passage, right? When when his disciples are picking picking um, um, on the Sabbath, they're picking um, grain and eating it, and they're condemned for it. And Jesus said, "Have you not read where David ate of the showbread? It's in this passage." What's interesting is who is to eat of the showbread? Only the priests. David is doing this and is justified. What we see here is the story is clearly showing that date this Davidic covenant is kind of superseding the Mosaic covenant. We've we we said you know weeks and weeks ago that the covenants are like steps up, right? They're like a staircase, and we're we're stepping from the Mosaic covenant into the Davidic covenant because we see that David is is and his mighty men as they're exiled from the from the land, right? They're plunder, they go and plunder the, the Philistines just like the ark did, right? But they're coming back into the land, right? And we see this, this, this passage which, which explains what's happening in Jesus' own ministry. And we see how, G, how David right, points to and is foundational. These stories like this are foundational for how we understand how Jesus walked through the land of Israel. Right, how he how he he spoke to his disciples, how he taught, right? Are rooted the, the, those those words are rooted in this in in our Old Testament in this Tanakh. So. And I think we see that connection between David and Christ as we look at the Psalter even more. I mean, if I could leave you all off, I'd, I'd exhort you with with Psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, saying. Let us burst our bonds apart and cast away our cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He will hold them in derision, but then he'll terrify them in his wrath and visit them in his fury, saying, for, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You shall break them into pieces with a rod of iron. You'll dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord is establishing David, but in a deeper, truer sense, he is he's he's bringing about his the coming of his son kiss the, the sun I just thought of a new name for the podcast stepping up through scripture what do you think <laughs> boo <laughs> well, I, I like the Bible connection <clears throat> all right audience we um, we are so glad that uh, you join in and and listen with us every week and I just I just wanted to remind you that you can share your questions with us. Uh, we have an email. It's uh, thebibleconnectionbdbc at gmail.com. Or you can simply leave a comment on the video here on YouTube. And like I say every week, if you want to, you know us, you got our phone numbers, see us in church, just you know, don't hesitate to holler at us. But um, that's it for uh, episode 14, correct? Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's it for episode 14, and, and we'll see you on 15.